Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Code, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Everyone, hello. This is Adam Ducker, CEO of RCL Co. If you're one of our regular listeners, then you know that since 1967, RCL Co. has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment planning and development. I'm delighted to invite Ellen Dunham-Jones to our podcast today, Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Ellen, you certainly live up to the billing. I've always found you to be indeed one of the best minds in real estate. And I'm excited about the conversation. We really have focused on practitioners in this space. And one of the things that I so admire about your career, I'll give a proper introduction in a moment, is how well you have bridged and I think really kind of created a dialogue and even a constructive back and forth between academia and practitioners, which is terrific. I've benefited from it. I think the industry benefits from it. And I hope it's a model that becomes increasingly common. So welcome. My pleasure. I should introduce Ellen is the director of the Masters of Science in Urban Design degree program at Georgia Tech. Before Georgia Tech, she taught at UVA and MIT. In addition to 100 articles or more, She's really best known for her books, The First Retrofitting Suburbia, Urban Design Solutions for Redesigned Suburbs, and a subsequent book, Case Studies in Retrofitting Suburbia, Urban Design Strategies for Urgent Challenges. The books document strategies and successful retrofits of aging big box stores, malls, suburban office parks into healthy and thriving places. Retrofitting Suburbia received the Prose Award as the best architecture and urban planning book of 2009. We've known each other, Ellen, since at least that time and had the chance to work on some things together. One at the Congress for the New Urbanism, where you were maybe at that point or maybe later chair of the board and in other places around the industry. So delighted to chat with you today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Adam. And it really, it's quite an honor for you to sort of say that you think I'm one of the people who's been able to bridge real estate and academia because I've kind of been a little operating never quite according to the acad- usual academic research standards and at the same time never quite <laughs> fully in the practitioner world either. Yeah, well, I think it would be fun to explore that a little bit today. And maybe just starting, how did you become interested in urbanism, I guess, and, and architecture and then How did you move from being an architect to kind of this academic focus? Well, ironically, really, I went into teaching quite young. I was only 27. And I started my first teaching job was at UVA. And I wanted to teach because I was doing freelance projects on the side, little architecture projects while I was working full-time in the office, and I could never go meet the contractors on site. I wanted the more flexible schedule of academia to allow me to actually do a little more practice. At the time, then, 
in Charlottesville, my then partner and I had a commission to design a traditional market. The site was along a commercial strip, and we quickly realized how all the regulations and just the building trade conventions were pretty much forcing us to reproduce sprawl. And that wasn't what our client wanted. It certainly wasn't something we wanted to do, but it showed me what the impact and influence of those regulations. And I just became a lot more interested in the power of the folks who are in control of zoning. So that's kind of a lot of how I I was starting to get interested in in urban design. Mm-hmm. And tell folks, I know a little bit about it, but tell folks a little bit about the program at Georgia Tech and how it's structured, how it's different than planning and how it's different than what we used to think of as sort of a like masters in real estate. So there are 23 degrees in the U.S. in urban design. And so Georgia Tech is one of of several that I would say the biggest difference between urban planning and urban design is that urban designers draw a lot. Most urban planners in the U.S. don't draw. Um, They do great analytical research. They write papers. They do a lot of community engagement. They're, They're doing all sorts of really important things, but it's not drawing the actual layout of neighborhoods or even larger transportation systems and really integrating at that larger scale. And that's really what urban designers, I think, do. So Georgia Tech, we're blessed, I think, by also having, as far as I know, there are only three real estate programs that are located in a college of design or as part of a school of architecture, MIT, Miami, and Georgia Tech. Most real estate programs are in the College of Business, and they're really mostly teaching students how to park rich people's money with very little interest in what the impacts on the ground really are. Yeah. And so how does that drive the profile of the student who comes to the program compared to somebody who's going either to a master's in real estate or just an MBA program and interested in real estate? Well, I think for the real estate students, it's really been surprising because honestly, I was initially a little concerned because a lot of the real estate students take my theories of urban design class. And I thought, oh, if they're just going to be focused on money, they're not going to, are they going to be interested in theory or I have been delighted to find that most of the real estate students, at least at Georgia Tech, they're often more ambitious than the architecture students, and frankly, in some ways, much more idealistic. Like, I'm going to figure out how to build affordable housing. I really am going to do that. I want to do community finance development. And I. they have both an ambition, but also, I think, a perspective of this is really possible. And I think a lot of the architecture students are feeling like, well, I don't control that. I don't really control who my client is going to be. Mm -hmm. I feel like my class is one of the most multidisciplinary because I get the city planners, the urban designers, the real estate students, and the architects, and try to really just talk them through a range of mostly basically 20th century 
urban design that in that class, it's really just, it's a theory class. And we look at, we read a lot. We start, I make them read Jane Jacobs from cover to cover in one week. Uh, <laughs> but they, they get to learn from each other as well as from the class. And that's important. You know, that's interesting. We, we're sort of agnostic in background. We hire people from, you know, early in their career, from planning and design programs, from real estate, from, and there's no formula for what sort of translates into working well with us. And, and even within that, there's a wide range of background. It's just how quantitative people are. And that doesn't necessarily prove to be particularly predictive of how well people both perform and then enjoy working with us. And so I like the idea that you have this sort of interesting, quirky mix of, of students. And we talked a little bit about coming into the program, but going out of the program, what are sort of the range of things that people wind up doing? So specifically in the urban design degree, we encourage, um, most of the students come with an architecture background, but I really try to also get landscape architects, civil engineers, and city planners. They have to be able to draw. So I get a lot of Chinese city planners. I get sort of different folks from different, and frankly, right now, one of the more interesting phenomena, those 23 urban design degrees, we've formed an urban design academic council and we compare notes. And right now, about 70% of the students in urban design degrees are from India. And so I went on a recruiting trip earlier in the summer to India to really try to under better understand how do I make what I'm teaching here that much more relevant to students who may be going back home to India. I would say that most of the student, the, the international students generally, they love that we're STEM accredited so they can work in the U.S. for at least three years. And I would say about half of the students when they graduate, they get a position at a firm. They're actually being called an urban designer and they're working as a most usually at a private consulting firm, sometimes working for a city, those cities that have an urban design department. And some are going on to get PhDs. They really want to do the analytical side. But there's also a good chunk of them that they'll get a position at a firm and it's still going to be as an architect or as whatever their prior professional degree was, but they become still the urban person in the firm who's really doing a lot more of the site planning and community interaction. And when you walk amongst the young urbanists in the hallway, like what are they excited about? What are they chatting about? What's the energy that's coalescing in that population? I'd say the two issues, and it's not too surprising, but social equity is huge and climate change. Interesting. Those two are top of the list. Yeah. Interesting. But maybe not surprising. You know, going back to our introduction, I kind of described your, you know, interesting role as being in the academy, but also really deeply linked with practitioners. Those, I think, are the areas in which it seems to me like us as a community of practitioners are, you know, paying some lip service, but not as deeply engaged yet with social equity or climate change as I think we will be in the future. Is that part of your mission as an educator and as kind of a bridge in that respect to kind of like keep that in the discussion? For me, the bridge literally has been Congress for the New Urbanism. That's where 
I'm self-taught as an urban designer by going to see and use. And I'd, I'd gone to a lot of academic conferences before I went to my first CNU as an academic spy. I totally agreed with the critique of sprawl and was very suspicious of these pastel-colored, nostalgic, Disney-fied kind of solutions. And yet I learned so much at the conference about, oh, from the traffic engineer, this is why the roads are designed this way. And from the developers, this is why the market is really going this way and I'm trying to make it more walkable, but, or whatever, you know. It was learning all of those constraints that in the ivory tower, we just sort of assumed, but this would be so much better. We should be doing it this way. And yet a lot of faculty maybe don't know or just aren't, they're not out there practicing and they're just not aware of quite where all those constraints are. So for me, I felt CNU is not an academic conference. Right, right. But it makes me a better teacher to actually under better understand from the practitioners there, I think, what the real challenges are, and then trying to challenge my students to come up with really innovative and interesting solutions, but with a real grounding in reality. And almost all of my studios, we always, for the last three years, have been working with a DeKalb County Commissioner, Ted Terry, and, you know, I mean, we're always working on real projects with real communities. And that really helps, you know, and I think it's actually in those studio projects where working at bridging equity and climate change, because we're working with real communities, but on a hypothetical solutions, we're actually, that's a really important piece of the bridge. So it happens, the county commissioner that I've been working mostly with, Ted Terry was elected on a Green New Deal agenda. And so it doesn't surprise his constituents or, you know, when he brings me in and I bring in a co-instructor, Tarek Raka, who's leading our high-performance building students, and they're doing all the calculations of, okay, here's the before condition of this dead mall, strip mall, whatever. Here's how much runoff it's generating. Here's how much energy these buildings are leaking. And then we do redesign. And, and then his students are sort of saying, well, now, you know, if you can rotate that street grid another five degrees, you're going to get less shade, more, more shade, less direct sun, heat gain. And Suddenly, so in terms of the climate change type issues, we've get it's teaching the mostly public sector folks. They come to our reviews and they get to really see what we're proposing and the a lot of local community folks. And the equity stuff, students have a secret weapon. I mean, because they are students, students can ask the naive questions of, you don't want affordable housing in your neighborhood? Why not? You don't want to let me live in your neighborhood? And they don't represent the city. They don't represent the developer. They're the innocents. And I think students actually on the equity issues can be some of the most effective kind of change agents. Right. Not fascinating. Well, let's talk a little bit about suburbs. You talked earlier about your experience in Charlottesville, but how did you get into thinking deeply about suburbs? And I'm kind of curious, you know, do people 
give you a hard time as an urbanist for spending so much time thinking about suburbs. Oh, yes. <laughs> Again, it, it goes back to Charlottesville. Beautiful, idyllic, pastoral Charlottesville. And I'm on the faculty learning how to teach. And the rest of my faculty are well, all of us. I mean, we're trying to build the pyramid of excellence and teach our students how to produce the very best buildings in the world. And meanwhile, you could almost hear the bulldozers coming down from D.C., chewing up the countryside and building sprawl. And I just at a certain point felt like, you know, I really respect what my colleagues are doing, but they're already doing polishing the top of the pyramid. I want to focus on lifting the bottom because for every one wonderful building at the top, my God, we've built how many thousands of pretty crappy stuff. And that's sort of where I started getting interested in, you know, first it was critiquing sprawl, but then coming, CNU, beginning to see some really great projects that firms like Dover Cole and plenty and others were doing to retrofit the suburbs. I didn't invent the term. Victor was the first time I heard it. But the magazines weren't publishing these projects because they weren't architecturally cool. And I just felt like, wow, I think this is important work. And yeah, it's not going to win beauty contests really in the magazine world, but I'm going to start documenting this. And it is kind of interesting. I mean, within academia, case studies are viewed as very low-hanging fruit because it's not original work. I'm just documenting the work of others. But practitioners love case studies and find them incredibly practitioners whether and city councils i've had city council people come up to me and just thank me for our books and the case studies also especially because you go into any library at a school of architecture city planning tons of books on downtowns the only books on the suburbs are a handful of critiques and maybe a few really old how-to subdivisions, how to subdivide kind of land. And there's just remarkably little on it. When I taught at MIT, I was absolutely discouraged by the chair told me, you know, if you were a true urbanist, you'd be working on downtowns. What are you doing? Focusing on suburbia. And I honestly even think there was a little bit of a sexist kind of feeling like downtowns are where men do manly things and the suburbs are sort of feminine and not really worthy, certainly not, they were held in total disdain, but also not really worthy of study, even though it's where most of the U.S. population lives, it's where the highest carbon footprint lifestyles are. I mean, it's name increasingly now, it's where more Americans in poverty live. I mean, name what challenge you want to work on and it's actually bigger in suburbia than it is in downtowns. And yes. that's why I got interested. I remember when retrofitting suburbia came out and I, I thinking that, you know, for a decade or longer, right, there had just been this chest pounding of city good suburb bad. And suddenly there was like, no, suburban places can be quite good. And here is like a tactical approach. I mean, you use that term tactical urbanism, right? Here's a tactical approach for thinking about better suburban places, not to be on the cover of an architecture magazine, but 
to be functioning healthy places. And it was ahead of its time, I guess, in some respects. That interest has sustained you for years now. Well, yeah, we wrote the first book, but got published in 2009. At that point, we had about 80 case studies that we knew about. And pretty much, if you were doing anything to reduce dependence on the automobile, you got in. That's where the bar was. But I continued to really make what at that point was a list, became a database. At this point, we've got I've got over 2,500 examples in there. And that's the tip of the iceberg. I can't keep track of all of the proposals, let alone the status, kind of how many have actually gotten built, how many have failed. I keep really as good numbers as I can on the shopping malls, but there's just so many other categories. It's it's a lot to cover. So that the reason we wrote the second book was because it was just clear that the retrofits were becoming way more ambitious better designed. And there was, you know, this was happening more and more. Now, I think communities that can are saying, well, all right, great. While you're reducing automobile dependence, what are you doing for public health, for an aging population, for leveraging social capital for equity, for competing for jobs and for climate change? Those were the stories that we kind of highlighted in the second book and and tried to also really emphasize that it's not only about redevelopment. Redevelopment is great in strong markets, but there are a lot of places where if you've got some Ohio and Cleveland has a bunch of dead malls, but they shouldn't be building new mixed-use town centers that will only attract will primarily, I think, attract people from their existing town centers if, unless, you know, maybe would help attract some new incoming population, but not so likely. And so we really try to emphasize also the importance of just re-inhabiting these places with more community-serving uses and or re-greening because we never should have built there in the first place and we really need I mean, part of the reason we have so much flooding with these severe storms is because we put all the creeks into pipes. Yeah. And over the last decade or longer, do you share my sense that this sense of reimagining suburbia like can be done, should be done, is a not a lesser task, but that its potential importance in terms of societal transformation and the level of opportunity that it presents for people in the real estate world is better understood? I probably am something of a polyam, you know, I tend to be an optimist, but I, I, yes, I see on the one hand, especially post COVID, we're seeing even more malls failing, retail in general, you know, a lot of underperforming commercial real estate. Yes, some in the cities, but also an awful lot out in the burbs. So on the one hand, the supply of sites that are ripe for some kind of retrofitting just keeps growing. And at the same time now, the pandemic, work from home, we've seen that much more of a boost. And it seems like, from what I can tell, a kind of counter trends. If your sort of suburban town already had some kind of a historic Main Street walkable little area, that area saw a boost. If all you have, if you're in an exurb or all you have are newer grocery anchored strip malls. Those are also doing gangbusters. And a lot of that seems to be attributed to work from home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, COVID has 
I think changed the tenor of the discussion around suburbs, maybe made them, maybe made it a less dirty word, or maybe just forced people to sort of think about it more deeply. Well, I think, yeah, I think we just, the division between cities and suburbs becomes such a a false narrative because A, cities encompasses a broad variety of places and so suburbs encompasses a tremendously broad variety of places. June and I tend to, my co-author, June Williamson, and I tend to really focus on urban versus suburban form rather than municipal designation of, of any, or census bureau, the census bureau designation for suburbs is kind of laughable. As you, you know, you've tried to define, <laughs> define yeah. suburbia. Well, we did that project on place-based, you know, geographical, you know, starting about five years ago and it kind of was like, yeah, that's nice, but like, I don't know what to do with that. Or just like, it doesn't help me. And we've actually continued to think that it's helpful for us to sort of think about places based on the character of the buildings that exist there, not based on sort of historical anomalies of like, what was the city and what was outside the city. And I do think that's changed that people have a more nuanced awareness of that now. Yeah. I mean, we play it even more just simply, just urban form is boxes that front sidewalks. If there's parking, it's beneath or behind. Suburban form is boxes that are surrounded by flattish land that's either parking or lawn. You know, I mean, we we just keep it really pretty dumb simple. And there's plenty of suburban form in plenty of cities. That in my that we think should should be retrofitted. There's also plenty of really good urban form. A couple little historic blocks, you know, in new suburbs as well as old suburbs. But um, to me, what's particularly I don't know the eyes on the prize are sort of the becoming a more polycentric metro, so that transit can become much more feasible to a variety of centers and that commutes become shorter and that, you know, that as we grow, it's not not to take anything away from central business districts, but to say, hey, the reality is 80 some percent of jobs have been outside the CBD for decades. And, you know, the more that we get polycentric, we can serve them by transit. And I think some of the new modes of transit start to make that more feasible. So, that's what I get hopeful about. Yeah. Now, am I, I'm guessing that, you know, five years ago, probably a lot of your conversations centered around underperforming suburban retail. And today it's more likely to be underperforming suburban office. It's certainly true that I think the office, dying office parks are yesterday's dying yeah. malls. Okay. And, you know, I mean, I'm not the first person to to point that out. And I'm definitely seeing a surge in the proposals to infill office parks for the most part. It's not so much completely demolish sometimes, but more often it's just densify and try to make these places a little bit more mixed use, more walkable, more compact, all all of that. But some of them are just so huge (laughs) that I think that one's a a fairly slow process, but yeah, there's a lot of development going in that direction. Yeah. I have a theory that, um, you know, you drive around in America, right? And you see a lot of underperforming suburban retail and 
sometimes people say, why doesn't more of it get redeveloped? And, you know, the reality is that people assume the value is relatively low, but it has income. And to close it down and, you know, figure out how to build something, you know, it's just sort of like too often the business case is hard to make. Unlike with suburban office, right, where people really have seen a significant diminution of value and are worried about the cash flow. So I think in the industry, on behalf of the owners, the imperative to do something is stronger around suburban office than suburban retail. And so maybe that that imperative or that sense of urgency to act will, in fact, kind of translate into um, more creative, more widespread, more, you know, even in some cases, really dramatically interventionist kind of proposals. There's so much opportunity, and I think, to basically start building residential on a lot of the parking lots in some of these big office, in small office clusters, in big office parks. Because once you get the residents in there, then that little lunchtime place can now start serving dinner and you start getting much better quality. And that can help attract or retain employees. You start seeing a lot of kind of virtuous cycles. And it's always surprising, I think, but as you densify office parks, you actually reduce the peak traffic because you're giving people more reasons to linger around. And and so it has a lot of win-wins. And we have a housing crisis. I mean, they're just, people need more, more places to live. What's been interesting to me, though, also, you know, what you're saying about the business case for a lot of redevelopment, and I still am looking for the answers. I haven't found them. But is that so many strip malls were are family owned? Yeah. And whereas the corporate owned real estate, office park or mall, they tend to be making decisions very rationally based on economic business models. But the strip malls, in many cases, dad built it, the mortgage was paid off, dad has since died, this was his legacy to the kids. They may be getting a minuscule check each month, but A, it's dad's legacy. B, if they were to sell and or redevelop, they'd have to deal with their siblings. And that is often the obstacle. And I've seen cities trying to say, you know, talk to them and sort of say, look, we'll we'll raise the zoning and, and do all change all this. And then the siblings just put, yeah, put too high a price on it and nothing happens. Strip malls have been one of the more resistant categories, surprisingly. We have this experience all the time, and in fact, so much so that I kind of don't like getting into the position where, you know, Family X owns the center, and it just seems like the income is not that great. But, you know, people like and need the checks, right? And we or somebody else comes along and says, like, well, we'll, we'll tear it down, and you won't get checks for two years, and... You know, you'll have to do X, Y, and Z or raise money or give up control or some other thing. By the way, maybe not even spend their own money. And then, you know, in year four or five, you'll have get higher income. And they're like, it doesn't sound that much higher. And then the way an institutional investor would think about it, yes, but the, the value of what you'll own at that point in the future will be so much greater. And like, that doesn't resonate. They never really thought about the value of what they own. They just thought about the checks. So it's foregoing the checks for four or five years to maybe have a bigger income stream down the road, but like, it's just not compelling. I would say 80% of the time when we go through that exercise at the end, they're like, yeah, we'll just uh, stick with I it. I was so hoping you'd have an, you no. didn't an answer. 
I think the good news is that there are more and more people who I think are are buyers of those centers to sort of do some of that retrofitting. It may not be the the legacy owners, and maybe that has some downside to it, but it has some upside to it. And I think there's not only the things that, that we need as an industry are just technical execution capacity, right? I think that you've added to that over the years of people who can think about what to do and know how to do it like a will in real estate, and then capital that's supportive of it. And I think that's the other thing that's changed. Capital is much more supportive of it. it. It's not an investment for everybody, but that risk profile, I think, is sort of attractive and will be attractive going forward. Well, maybe we yeah need to focus on, I don't know, some new, how to make it really easy for the legacy owners. Because I do think the best development is always that which is the most locally oriented so sometimes those le- legacy families, that is part of what they really care about, whether they still live there or not. So yeah, I know, trying to make a retrofit strip malls easier. <laughs> I think the other challenge in suburbia, right, is we imagine retrofitting as a sort of generally benefiting a community. Right? But in a lot of communities, like, you know, people are not so sure. And the benefit of a legacy owner is that it's easier for constituents to imagine that this is coming from our community. It's good for us and not just something from outside. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's still a lot of NIMBY resistance to retrofitting and a lot of people that want the community, they're trying to protect their community to be just like it was when they moved in and attract the same households that look just like they did when they moved in. And so much part of certainly what I try to educate folks on is that in many cases, those households don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And the changes to households, you know, we are much smaller households, more diverse households, much more dual income. I mean, there just is so a lot of the needs and in older, older households now in the suburbs and there's just not as many people that really are needing the big single family house on the big lot. So as an urbanist, whether you're spending a lot of time in it or not, what what questions or issues are interesting to you today? Well, I would say, you know, certainly climate change and equity, as I already kind of said, but I'm also, I really am interested in how the American dream continues to sort of persist this the attraction of the big single family house and especially given right now more women are graduating college than men realtors always say it's really the woman who picks the house and it's there's still this aspiration of now young educated women who want it all they want a really powerhouse career and they want the big suburban house and yet That big suburban house comes with the double shift in an aging society. Increasingly, it's the triple shift, most of that being borne by the woman. And maybe it means she's going to simply hire a lower paid woman to do a lot of that housework and care work. But I'm sort of surprised that we still put up with this 1950s model (laughs) that I just feel is so out of sync. And yet it's clearly some of that's just driven by that's what the market's providing because that's what the zoning is still requiring. And that's, you know, all these other economic drivers. 
But I'm challenging students right now to kind of think uh, some of those 1970s and 80s feminist critiques are still so on target. Well, that's a fascinating topic. I've had the same thought. I don't know how to explain the persistence of that really down to the white picket fence. You know, it's really like. <laughs> yeah. Some of it is nostalgia and a comfort level with what the movies have shown them, what maybe what they grew up with, maybe not what they didn't grow up with. And so now aspire to or something like that. But I do think we as designers, architects and planners and urban designers really haven't thought about how to make life easier for the smaller households, dual income. So that's one that I feel like is interesting to try to explore. Yeah. I, I was reading some of your recent articles earlier in the week, and somewhere you said that you thought placemaking is more important today in a post-COVID world than it ever has been. What do you mean by that? And and what do you think that means for urban design in the next decade? So back when I was teaching at MIT in the 90s, when the World Wide Web was invented by Tim Berners-Lee at, at MIT, it was fascinating how many of my colleagues kind of in the School of Architecture and City Planning we're very seriously saying, that's it. We don't need cities anymore. I have more friends online than I know my own neighbors. You know, the digital world, this is it. And these were, I'm a geek. I love geek culture. I, I'm totally appreci very appreciative of that. But what happened since the 90s into the 2000s, we saw, yes, Internet use and digital time spent in front of screens exploded. But we also saw the renaissance of the cities. Mm -hmm. We saw people actually wanting to be part, feel some kind of face-to-face -face interaction as well as an interaction with nature. I, I started looking in the 90s at where did day traders live? <laughs> because I... And it was places like Santa Fe and some of the resort towns, Seaside actually had quite, in Florida, had quite a few day traders. So they were getting places where they could walk to a coffee shop and be a regular and kind of have some community, feel part of a community and also access to great nature. And so part of me just feels that the more time we spend online, I don't think I'm the only person who the more time I spend online, the more I really crave getting out for a walk or a bike ride, getting walking along. I mean, you know, if I'm leisure shopping isn't for me is ne has never really been at the mall. I'd much prefer le if I'm at leisure shopping is going to be on a main street or rest the restaurants and things. So the cafes, I think the tele everything world now of teleeducation, teleshopping, teleshopping, telemedicine, telehealth. I mean, that just starts to even the playing field between do I really have to live in an expensive city or maybe I choose to live in an expensive resort town. We've seen some of that, but also just maybe I don't have, I'm going to live in a less expensive, less amenity rich place 
if that's what I choose to do. I just feel like it hope it should allow us to even the playing field. I mean, that would be great, right? Because I think that is that was one of the unintended consequences of the urban revival of the last decade, which is, you know, these places that we were all celebrating became unaffordable to so many. Absolutely. And I mean, the digital divide is still very real. And I don't see any evidence <laughs> that we're actually evening the playing field. If anything, it seems like we're still, the rich places are getting richer, the poor places are getting poorer. But I actually, I still do think there's potential through the digital to actually increase and improve communities. One of the things that I worry about as an urbanist, and maybe this is a short-term phenomenon and it'll play out, is but there's so much energy and anxiety around, you know, kind of some of the rising crime rates and, you know, cities and suburbs. You know, are you hopeful that this is something that, you know, we're in an adjustment and a societal adjustment and that will play itself out or is this sort of a longer term, you know, cyclical or... I certainly want to believe that the problem is more the perception of crime than actual crime, which is always kind of been the, you know, what we've all been told. Yeah. Until it happens to you. And then it becomes super real, super fast. I don't think it's good for democracy when the rich recede behind gates and the poor are also concentrations of poverty. It's not where we want to be going. And I think it's, again, why suburbia is actually a really pretty important test ground for this, because suburbia traditionally was always is has been the engine that built the middle class. Right. And it's increasingly the suburbs are in, are more and more income segregated, you know, that you have very rich and very poor, but they don't have anything to do with each other in general. So the crime side of things, I think, is is always it's absolutely understandable why, you know, the circle the wagons inclination. Right. Well, maybe in an interesting place to end in a discussion on the changing nature of <laughs> places, suburban and urban. And I, I do feel hopeful for suburbs and for cities. I think that um, there's so much creative energy and, you know, will to make great places and such a a sense that the consumer understands it and will support it that, I mean, I think that fast forward 10 years, we'll sort of look back and we'll actually be amazed at the amount of retrofitting that's been done. I mean, the fact is just so much of what what we've built is aging. You know, the first early, just gen- not earliest, the post-war generation of suburbs were not built particularly well and they're they're falling apart and it's they need some new attention i feel like i have endless job security though because we are still building a lot of the exact same car dependent single use sprawling places and so it's sort of like my work will never be done which i hope is not the case but it certainly continues well it's a delight to chat with you i bet a lot of people listening have retrofitting suburbia on their shelf. You should break it out and spend a little time with it again. It's really terrific. And what you've done and the program that you really helped build at Georgia Tech is is a, a model. I think it's producing, you know, terrific young designers and practitioners 
And uh, as I said earlier, there's a lot to be optimistic about. And thanks for spending the time. My pleasure. Thank you, Adam. Really been great. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, hosted by RCL Co. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at RCL Co. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.